From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Because the critical thing we must do to stop the disease spreading between households. That is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping for basic necessities as infrequently as possible. One form of exercise a day, for example, a run, walk or cycle, alone or with members of your household. Any medical need to provide care or to help a vulnerable person and travelling to and from work, but only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. That was the moment Boris Johnson announced Britain would be going into a full lockdown. It was on the 23rd of March 2020 and followed a long period where the UK had tried to go it alone by keeping things open and taking Covid on the chin. What you heard there was Johnson conceding to the inevitable. At the time, as I am now, I was working as a journalist trying to make sense of COVID-19 and the government response to it. That was via my live show on Navarra Media, which then for the first time I was hosting from my living room. We were working remotely. Um, But when I think back to that time, it's not any of the Downing Street press conferences or journalistic details which stand out to me. Rather, it's more a general feeling. And that's because for the first time in my life, especially during those first months of COVID, especially during those first days of COVID even, I felt I was really living through history. Uh, This wasn't just writing about the news or talking about the news as, as usual. This was commenting on history in real time. That's what it felt like. And I have one particularly distinct memory of being struck by this feeling, by this sense that this was was big. It was a couple of days just after the first lockdown was announced, so after the clip you just heard. And I was walking through my empty estate, of course, to go to the supermarket just before closing time. So I hope this would be when it would be most empty. I didn't want to, you know, cause stress to people bumping into them in the supermarket. So you try and go just before closing. Of course, the streets were deserted. And I thought, it might sound naive now, this is our World War II. This is our blitz. Now, as I say, saying this now, it sounds silly, crass even, but in that moment, the COVID lockdowns felt on that scale, it felt of, of world historic significance. The country, indeed the whole world, was fighting a common enemy. There were heroes on the front line, doctors, nurses, supermarket shelf stackers. And like any great war, there would be countless casualties and losses too. Now, to be clear, this isn't a positive memory of mine. I was never under any impression COVID-19 wouldn't be horrific and that it wouldn't be grim at this moment. There were already Um, People dying in hospital, people working on the front lines, having probably the most terrifying time of their life. It's not, though, wholly a a negative memory either. And that's because in this moment, I also felt that like after the Second World War, COVID could leave a legacy that made us a better, more equal country and a stronger society. In those first moments of COVID, we had not only been introduced to the concept of the essential worker but we universally venerated them. In replacing the incomes of those on furlough and even guaranteeing rooms for the homeless, the response to COVID showed the state did indeed have the capacity to support the vulnerable. Moreover, mutual aid groups were were popping up. There was an incredibly strong sense of community. And this might sound like the most naive of my beliefs or feelings of all, but I did 
think that by showing the folly of ignoring the warnings of scientists, the COVID pandemic might serve as a lesson that spurred us to combat an even bigger challenge, climate change. Maybe this was the warning we needed so that we would resolve even bigger problems on the way. But we're now more than three years on from that moment and, well, I'm less optimistic. In 2023, the main stories on my Navara show haven't been how much we're now valuing essential workers, but rather how they're fighting pay cuts. They're also being demonised in the process. We're a very long way from clapping for carers. Um, also being demonised have been the climate protesters begging us to prepare for future catastrophes. And instead of a 1945 moment when the Labour Party promised to build the ambitious welfare state we still rely on today, we have tepid politicians heading both of our main parties telling us the money's run out and nothing other than the status quo is really possible. So is it time to give up on my hope that the collective experience of COVID could give way to a more solidaristic world? If that hasn't happened, why hasn't it? And just as importantly, might the world have fundamentally changed, but just in ways I hadn't predicted and which still remain difficult to, to perceive? In this series, I'll be speaking to scientists, economists and international experts to try and find answers to those questions. And for the first episode, I brought together two people I work with closely throughout the pandemic. They are Ash Sarkar, my esteemed colleague over at Navara Media, who has co-hosted a YouTube show with me on a weekly basis from 2020 up to today. And by James Butler, co-founder of Navara Media, who can now be found at the London Review of Books. During the first lockdown, James hosted a brilliant daily podcast on Navara called The Burner. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. To support the show and listen to all the full episodes, you can sign up for as little as £3 a month over on Patreon. That's at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Of course, if you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Ash, James, thank you so much for joining me. This feels like a bit of a reunion. Obviously, we were all working together quite closely um, in those, can we call them heady days? Of the shipping of the first container. Lockdown. <laughs> the shipping container. And that was when James was hosting um, The Burner every morning. Yeah. Or rather intense. Burnt you out a little bit, potentially. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I was burnt out going in. <laughs> burnt going in, burnt coming out. Um, let's... Um, go straight into it. I mean, we're going to be talking about how COVID changed society. This is sort of social, cultural analysis. Um, I want to start, though, with, I mean, is it a more simple question? Maybe it's a more difficult question. But how did COVID change your lives personally? I mean, you can be as as open as you, you like. You don't have to reveal too many secrets. But um, Ash, can I start with you? Yeah. So I moved in with my partner for the first time because we could see the lockdown coming and we just had to make a decision of should we go for it or not because who knows how long we'll be apart and it felt like such a gamble to not just move in with somebody when um there's something very stressful going on in the wider environment but to do so in a way when you're cut off from your friends and your family so you're truly on planet couple and it ended up going fine but I think on a personal level I've never been the same as I was before that because so much changed in my personal life and some of those changes stayed we still 
lived together and that we must have been informed by the pandemic in some way, some way that I don't want to think about. My theory was that the pandemic sort of sped up stuff that might have already happened anyway. So I was already living with my then partner um, when, when the first lockdown came in and it made us much closer and then sort of pulled us apart, which I feel like could have taken a couple of years, but instead took four months. God bless him. We're still very good friends. We share a dog. It's all very positive. But that's, I feel like it, it had a sort of intensifying effect on things that might already have, have happened. I don't know, maybe that passes over to some sort of cultural and social examples as well. Um, James, I want to know about your yeah, COVID experience. I, I mean, obviously, I think probably the thing to say is that it came so hot on the heels of a catastrophic political defeat that in a sense... Uh, it, you know, I, when I try to look back at it now, I realised that even going into it, and so I said, you know, I was doing the burner and I was burnt out because really I was reviving it having just done it in the 2019 election um, and saying, well, okay, well, we'll run it again. Um, and, you know, in some sense, I look back there and think, well, did we really take the time to process that defeat or did we you know have something kind of socially catastrophic to move on to in you know which enabled us not to think about um you know the 2019 defeat or, or kind of encoded things that were very you know tendentious about it but personally i mean it, it was an interesting time for me i you know immediately after that december i sort of took some time off and sat by the fire i, I actually recall reading John Powers's textbook on Tibetan Buddhism, which probably tells you where my head was at the time. <laughs> Is it actually really a marvellous book? He's actually, bizarrely, you know, probably the most prominent um, Western Tibetologist. Uh, he's also the father of Uma Thurman. What? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, interesting guy. So anyway... I mean, Does that mean she's a Nepo baby or are they two different think, enough professions that it doesn't count? I think Tibetology and Hollywood uh, are reasonably far apart. I'd actually, I'd actually say there's probably quite a lot of crossover. But I might mm. be taking us on a, a detour. <laughs> Continue, but, James. But so, I mean, you know, so I was running, you know, a daily show, which was, you know, really too much work, actually, and very intimate in the sense that you were reaching people in this very kind of uncertain time and uh, people were listening to you every morning and, uh, you know, listening to something just as you're getting up every morning, it feels kind of, you know, very close to your heart. So, uh, I, you know, I realised that one thing that I was doing in that period was, you know, effectively throwing myself into work, which I have a bad habit of doing anyway. Um, and so one of the one of the things I learned to do a little bit, you know, I asked my partner and he'll tell you that I haven't learned it very well um, over that period was to kind of you know step back and think, you know, what am I actually doing here? And as you say, I think it sped up some decisions for me. I mean, so one of the things that I, th I thought I actually I've done 10 years of making radio and I love it, but it's time for me to step back and move on to something else. Um, so COVID is why we lost you to the London Review of Books, well, James. Well, I mean, it's not the it's Another not the pandemic only... breakup. <laughs> no, it's, you know, I mean, it's not a breakup so much as a, a finding the right distance to, to, to function. A conscious uncoupling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're really making me sound like a hippie here. Um, you're no, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I think oh, Tibet, Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism is a very serious religion. It's not a, a hippie-ish thing at all. Um, but it's all to do with kind of desire and attachment and whether, you know, you're allowing your kind of craving for something to to govern you in a way that you actually probably shouldn't be governed. And I think that's a very important thing to think about in relation to politics and many other things besides. So I realised I wanted to be a bit further away from the news cycle. I realised I wanted to be writing, really, rather than um, 
which I regard as the kind of highest form of of intellectual work. Um, <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's just it's a personal it's a personal judgment. Um, you know, more than anything else. It sounded quite I think, personal, actually. <laughs> I think most clearly when I'm writing. I think most clearly when I'm writing. And so for me, that's well. What I think most clearly when I'm hosting podcasts. So there we are. <laughs> and that's why the world is a wonderful and diverse place. I mean, I think I think politically for me during the pandemic, I found a renewed sense of purpose. And that was a lot to do with you, Michael. Um, because when when the 2019 general election happened, it felt like a bereavement. And I'm not exaggerating at all, because I remember doing media all night after the exit poll and then all day the next day. And then I went to my mum's house and I just started crying and she put her arms around me and she was just like, it feels like someone's died. And I understand that because this was years of hope and activity and political purpose. And it was just wiped out overnight. And I remember we, as Navarro Media had a meeting afterwards going, okay, so what do we do now? And we came up with a plan and then we had to have a new plan because pandemic <laughs> happened. And then along comes Michael Walker being like, I'm just going to do this thing every day and you're all going to join in. And it allowed us to build new relationships with a bigger audience. It gave us a renewed sense of purpose. It allowed us to, I think, really hone what it is we do and how we intervene in the media cycle how we interact with the news and how we talk about politics from a position of disempowerment relative to where we were before, but I think a more powerful position within the media ecology. And I don't know what my brain would have been like were it not for you just sort of taking the idea and running with it like a border collie. I genuinely think that, you know, you kind of dragged my brain away from depression against its own will and I'm very grateful for that oh that's very that's very moving and sweet I mean I, I think I should say so I mean I, I think um I feel very professionally lucky about how my covid was especially the first lockdown because I can imagine that you know for, for a lot of people it was a very lonely experience I was actually speaking with my colleagues every evening on YouTube with a reasonably large audience that you also get feedback from so I didn't feel in any way sort of disengaged from society um so I think that's why it was quite an intellectually and you know, you know it, was, it wasn't like emotionally the best time of my life but it wasn't emotion a sort of emotionally barren um moment which is potentially why um or one of the reasons why I was actually a little bit optimistic about what COVID could mean in the long term um I suppose one of the sort of motivations for this podcast is that I'm a little bit less optimistic now or maybe <laughs> some of my optimisms were somewhat um disappointed um if that's what you, can you say that can you say your optimism is disappointed james uh, uh not quite uh, no, unfulfilled really, yeah uh, my optimism was unfulfilled potentially um close enough yeah um let's move on to society in one second first of all though i just want to point out that we had free lockdowns and covid lasted a very long time and i feel like often when people remember covid and think back to covid they think about th th those months between sort of march and june in that first lockdown it was sunny outside we were all sort of completely encountering this alien experience which was being locked in our homes and it felt like unbelievable it felt almost unreal and surreal which in a way for me made it very intellectually ent entertaining is the wrong word but intellectually interesting intellectually stimulating and then i think by the time when there was the second and the third it for many people i think that's almost like dead time mm. dead mm. space um so i suppose i want your thoughts on 
you know, the length of it? What, what was the difference between that first lockdown and what it meant to your life? And then the fact that it went on for another year and a half, which kind of no one was expecting um, at, at the beginning. Everyone thought it was going to be a short, yeah. sharp burst. I mean, for me, I'm very fortunate. I live on a, a boat in um, uh, in Bermondsey, on the Thames. And that means that there's a community there, and it's a community that by its nature interacts outside, right? So there's lots of, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate kind of socially in that sense and, and fortunate to have nice people around. The winter, the, the winter in that lockdown, I found, you know, I find British winters difficult anyway. I think lots of people do. They go on forever. Everyone always forgets. They think, you know, oh, Christmas has come. Winter is going to be over soon. It's not the case. Um, removing the means by which people survive winter, which is, you know, gathering together in spaces that are warm, makes that very, very difficult. I, fa- I, found it ext- I found it extremely hard. I was extremely depressed about the trajectory of the country. Um, and I was extremely sceptical that any of the mismanagement, which I'm sure we'll come to talk about, um, by the government during the pandemic was actually going to cause any, you know, see any consequences at all. Um, I think I've probably been right about that. Um, Boris Johnson might be a different question. But but yes, I think it's important to remember, and like you, I was very fortunate, you know, nobody close to me fell very ill. Um, and nobody close to me really suffered psychologically very deeply as a result of the pandemic. Um, I certainly saw it happen among people I was acquainted with, but nobody close to me. And so that itself is a different thing. And that's a difficult thing as well, to know that there is a kind of quite extensive um, social suffering going on out there. And yet to feel yourself both sort of doing all right, actually, and having to kind of sit with that and not allow that to become an excuse to sort of run away from the fact that there's lots of suffering happening out there that is part of the society that you're a part of and are therefore in some sense politically responsible for. Mm. Ash? I mean, it's so strange because you said there were three lockdowns and I went, oh my God, yes, there were. My brain has not let me fully remember what that period of time was like it's like it's constantly trying to protect me from how insane it really was and how little social stimuli I was getting from my friends and from my family I think the first lockdown was you know yeah it ended up being sunny all the time in the summer but I remember because my birthday's in April And so we're about a month and a bit into lockdown at that point. And the highlight of my birthday day was trudging in the rain to the local Morrisons (laughs) (laughs) and getting something and coming back. Um, And, you know, I had a very good lockdown. You know, I was, by virtue of my job, very protected. I didn't have to go outside. I didn't have to encounter people who might be infectious. I wasn't in overcrowded housing I was living with my partner in a relationship that was good and happy for lots of people. Some of those things didn't apply or potentially none of those things applied. Um, But the winter lockdown, I think, is when I started feeling angry and frustrated in a way that I hadn't. I think during the spring, there was the sense of social solidarity and the sense of, well, if it's shit, it's shit for all of us. Um, But the winter came along and it's because we had that 
glimmer of social interaction, even if it was just hanging out with six people outside or, you know, six people in a pub where there's acres of space in between the tables, that was a lifeline. It was amazing. I'd missed my friends so much. And the feeling of that being taken away again, I became unreasonably angry. And even though politically I understood the necessity of it and I knew that the vaccines were coming and knew that things were going to change, when um, Christmas got cancelled because London got put into lockdown, so it meant I couldn't do what I'd planned to that Christmas, which got to my partner's family's place for the first time. Um, and I was stuck in London and he was stuck up north and I saw people piling onto the trains and I felt so angry because I was like, I can't get caught doing that. Like my career and my credibility and my legitimacy as a voice on these issues would be killed so I can't do it and I wanted so badly to just be like you know eating an overcooked turkey with the people that I love and I couldn't I suppose I should I, I should say in, in this conversation we're starting it with sort of personal stories but I, I, I want to say obviously we recognize that we're all journalists we have quite a specific personal experience of of the pandemic and in this series I will be endeavoring to speak to sort of doctors nurses people who were working where they were worried about getting infected and then potentially also people who have you know been bereaved by covid who i think have a very different experience as well in fact actually the i mean the way that that interacted sometimes with journalism which we'll probably talk about later was very interesting as well. i remember um sort of in 2021 so after freedom day i know lots of people don't like using that phrase but after freedom day um, a couple of months after it sort of bumped into an old friend of mine in a club who was really annoyed at me for not having taken a harder line on Freedom Day, because I was sort of saying, this is actually quite a difficult conversation now. We have got the vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. We will have to move to the next phase. And he'd, his father had died mm. um, sort of in that period. And so he was really annoyed at me for not having had a harder line on Freedom Day. I was sort of thinking, you're talking to me in a nightclub. But, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. It's, it's, everything was so heightened. You saw that in sort of like Twitter replies as well, because people had such a different experience. People who have been, you know, completely disabled with, with long COVID. I think it's overstated the extent of people who are disabled by long COVID by some people on Twitter, but it's really real. I know people who are essentially disabled by long COVID and people who lost loved ones or people who had PTSD from working on the front line in hospitals. So it was it was in a way a collective spirit experience because we all had this, this crisis together, but our experiences of it were so, so different. See, I had a non-COVID bereavement during that time in 2021. So this was... Um, a really close childhood friend grew up with me like a cousin who was diagnosed with a very rare and very aggressive form of cancer. And it pretty much only affects young black men because you know who got dealt a really easy hand in society? It's them, give them a couple of challenges. Um, and basically by the time it's picked up, you're, you're terminal. And so it was really, really quick deterioration. And it was over the course of eight weeks, I think if that from diagnosis to him passing and it it it, you 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 could do some stuff then there were limitations on how many people could attend a funeral there were limitations of how many people could be at awake but it was so inadequate to grieve in that context because you couldn't do all the things that you would normally do when someone dies and especially when somebody dies so young which is a troop of people in and out of the house, bringing food, offering comfort, just also providing something of a change of social scenery for particularly the bereaved parent and siblings. Um, you couldn't, you couldn't do that. And it put so much 
pressure on the formality of the funeral in a way. You had to get so much of your grieving done there because that was the only place where you could legally gather at the time. And so it's not, I don't think it's the same as losing a loved one to COVID because I think for lots of people who lost a loved one for COVID, they feel a sense of social abandonment by the state. They feel like this death was preventable and in many cases, they're right. You know, it, it, it may have been preventable. But grieving in that context was so weird and atrophied. And, you know, I, I understand the, the point made by your friend, which was you should have gone harder on Freedom Day. I've experienced this loss. And if anything could have been done to stop me from experiencing this loss, I, of course I would want it done. Um, but there's also aside which is all of the things you need to be socially and emotionally healthy in times of great pain were also highly limited or curtailed or taken away from you and I think lots of people did feel that they were abandoned by the state in precisely that way because they, they sort of said I have these needs I have these priorities and they're not being met I'm not being listened to I'm you know there, there were lots of people who sort of by the third lockdown um, who I knew were having sort of quite severe mental health crises because they didn't have sort of the, the the daily interactions that they needed with people to make everything okay. And I think there was a sense that sort of like we we have been abandoned here. I know like, you know, none of these people were sort of COVID deniers. They all recognise it was a serious problem, but it's like surely there was some way to make this more livable for us. And I think in retrospect, probably there were many ways to to make these things more more livable for people also one of the reasons people are so annoyed about party gate because they're like if i, I it's because i wasn't able to do that mm -hmm. that i fell into a pit of despair we'll come on to that um later um we're also going to go actually to some other people's personal experiences i'll just start that one again um we're going to go to some other personal experiences from covid because i did call out um, on my Twitter, um, and I've had some followers send stuff in, all super interesting. Before we go back to that, though, before we go back to sort of personal experiences, I want to get back to the headspace of the start of the pandemic, and in particular, what it felt like politically and culturally. Um, and to that end, what you'll hear now is the audio of a video of Boris Johnson at the end of March 2020. Now, the video is self-shot on an iPhone, so it had a, had a homemade, homely feel, very much sort of, I'm speaking to you from lockdown. And in fact, I mean, it wasn't just lockdown. Boris Johnson at this point in time was self-isolating with COVID-19. Um, he would be admitted to hospital just under a week later. Again, I want to thank everybody in the NHS. I want to thank all our public sector workers. I, I've uh, the roll call of honour you will be familiar with. I, also, everybody in the private sector, one group in particular, not just the, the supermarkets who, and all the workers in uh, those businesses who help to keep our, our country going, but our pharmacists as well. And I think how important it is that our pharmacists are not only dispensing vital medicines, but also very often reassurance to the, the customers they interact with. So thank you to our wonderful pharmacists for everything that you are doing. And uh, thank you to, by the way, to everybody who's now coming back into the NHS in such huge numbers. Uh, we have, uh, just this evening I can tell you, uh, we have 20,000 uh, NHS staff coming back uh, to the colours doctors uh, and nurses. It's an, a most amazing thing. And that's, of course, in addition to the 750,000 uh, members of the public who have volunteered to help us 
get through this crisis. We are going to do it. We are going to, to do it together. One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. So thank you to all of you. And remember, stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives. So um, that does sound almost from a different age and it mm. sort of captured so much of the zeitgeist of that moment. So a huge thank, a huge thank you to public sector workers, to, to people working on the front line, also to the kind of jobs that don't normally get shout outs from prime ministers. So people working in supermarket shelves, there was this whole concept of the essential worker, um, which we all realised, oh, whose jobs really matter? Um, I feel like we've potentially forgotten that a little bit. Um, there was also the the 750,000 people signing up for the NHS Volunteer Army. I remember this was a massive story at the time, this idea that the whole country was coming together. Everyone wanted to be involved to sort of fight this disease, this pandemic. Um, the World War II sort of analogies in there as well. And then you hear a Conservative Prime Minister saying, there is such a thing as society. And I think that was quite specific. I think he said that for a reason, because he was saying... I am not Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher said there is no such thing as society. There's just individuals and families. He is saying, nope, there is such a thing as society. This is a real reset moment in politics, or at least that's what it felt like. Um, you know, you'll also remember this was the, the age of clap for carers. So every Thursday sort of going out and, and clapping on on the the doorsteps of, of the public and politicians, which I have to say I found quite moving at the time as well. So it's easy to be cynical in retrospect, but I remember being in, you know, a sort of high-rise flat in Hackney, very densely populated, and then everyone would go out their window and, you know, clap their pans. And that felt really actually incredibly powerful. It wasn't, you know, I don't think we should look back at this purely cynically. Um, but I suppose, yes, first of all, I suppose to, to comment on how specific... Um, that political and cultural moment was before potentially um, discussing whether we forgot it and why we did if we did. Well, it's really remarkable watching a video of Boris Johnson because it reminds you that this man does not believe in anything, nothing at all. Because in the very early days of the pandemic, he was saying, well, look, there's one theory, which is we've just got to take it on the chin. I believe he said that on this morning. And then the very next day, you had people who were being vox popped who were saying, oh, you know, we've just got to take it on the chin. So I think that he'd had the fear of God drummed into him by, you know, Chris Whitty and other experts and the comms experts came in and said, this is the kind of feeling you've got to go for. And he went, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a famous callback to Margaret Thatcher and go, all right, we're not individualists anymore. We're in a pandemic. He loves doing a Winston Churchill tribute act. That's been something which has been a real common refrain throughout his political career. And in some ways, he obviously looks like total shit in that video because he's got COVID and he was very unwell. But politically, he was in his comfort place, which is bombast, optimism, very vibes-based political chameleon. Um, and I think there are also some commonalities between the sort of mood he was trying to summon there and how he conducted himself during the EU referendum of 2016. This was something which um, both Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings have said, which is we put Tony Benn lines in his mouth and, you know, we stuck him in a market in Doncaster and we had the Remain team making their case from the city of London. Now, that's not because Boris Johnson particularly likes the people of Doncaster or he feels any 
ideological affinity with Tony Benn, but he will say the line which people tell him will work and he will sell the hell out of it. I think that's true, but I think there is one thing to say about him is that his kind of, his centre of gravity, his instinctive centre of gravity, he often used to call himself a Brexity Hezer, right, a Michael Heseltine, which is that he's never really been... I mean, as long as he's free to get as much money as he wants and, you know, to engage in all the various um, activities that, um, that he, with which he likes to occupy his time, he's always had a sort of noblesse oblige, sort of, you know, we should be nice-ish to poor people, you know, uh, you know, that some social spending would be quite reasonable. Uh, it's always been a kind of, it's the, you know, he's quite happy to go wherever he wants, as you say. But that is the mean to which he returns. So in a sense, kind of a mass volunteer effort of sort of pulling together, it's not only a Churchill thing, it's actually quite a comfortable place for him to be intellectually. There's a reason that he sounds like he means it. It's not just that he's an accomplished liar, although he is an accomplished liar. It's that it's much more comfortable for him. Um, I also think that there's something interesting here that emerges from the way in which British people think about themselves. And you mentioned World War II, and obviously that's the callback because it's the most recent um, enormous event in which kind of a sort of social spirit of some kind of cooperation um, uh, was required. Um, and I think you know, it seems clear to me that you know, there's an appetite for that sort of thing in extraordinary circumstances. And I don't think it's just a British thing. Um, you know, I think it's visible worldwide. But there's a there's a way in which it gets articulated in Britain um, to do with kind of muddling on through and being optimistic and you know um, uh, you know not making too much of a, a kind of hysterical fuss about things. There will always uh, be in England. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so, um, England prevails, eh? Um, the clapping for carers thing, I think, emerged from that kind of curious mix of sort of sentiment um, and genuine social solidarity. And it's a very, very interesting, um, I think, British disposition. It's just a cultural feature of the way in which we do politics. And it's worth kind of noticing the way in which it manifests. I have to say, as someone who has spent some time recently thinking about care work, I wrote a big piece on um, the care crisis for the LRB not so long ago. Um, people should go and read it. It's a good piece, I think. Um, it was striking to me that in the pandemic, care work became so visible. And, you know, we could really see the way in which so many other things depend on it. It remains true. And I remember at the time thinking, can this really all go back under the rug? Turns out pretty much, yeah, it can. Um, you know, the, the, and in a sense, one of the things that has worsened the social care crisis since the uh, end of the acute phase of the pandemic is that people really pushed themselves to the brink working in that time and then said, you know what, I've actually done my five years, 10 years, either on the front line as a nurse or, um, you know, in the kind of very, very unforgiving and very, very, look, my sister-in-law is a, or was a frontline care worker um, in, 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 um, elder care and she you know for various reasons left the profession but one of them is that it is very hard sometimes emotionally rewarding but certainly not financially rewarding um very brutal work and it is not one that it's not a form of work that's valued and so that that intermission i think 
you know, I, I, at the time I had some hope that, that it would change things. And it really doesn't seem to have stuck. I mean, there was also the role of unpaid care work, yeah. which was massive. And I think my family was quite typical in that it was almost all done by my mum. So my mum was at the time living with her mum, my grandmother, who was in her 80s, and my stepdad, who's clinically vulnerable. And my sister, also clinically vulnerable, but wasn't wasn't living at home, was living with her partner. And the minute news of COVID broke from China, my mum was the one saying, this is going to be so serious. I'm really worried about your sister. I'm really worried about your grandmother. I'm really worried about your stepdad. And... I remember as a family, we're a bit like, oh, mom, you're always making such a big deal of stuff. You know, and my sister in particular, who's, you know, lived with, um, you know, an often quite debilitating lung condition all her life was like, oh, you know, she's always making a mountain out of the molehill when it comes to my, you know, when it comes to my lungs. And then lockdown happens. And not only was my mom right, she then had to deal with working full time from home. She was still working as a social worker at that time whilst also being the person who managed risk in the home and did the majority of the care work for my grandmother and did the you know majority of the care work for my stepdad as well. And I think that that was something which happened in so many families because if you had an elderly relative or a relative who had disability and had care needs, you had to make the decision between can we cope with the risk of someone else coming in and being paid to do this work but obviously there's a greater risk of infection or am I just going to have to do all of this work myself and I'd had been hopeful that that being such a a a commonplace experience up and down the country for in particular women who are in their 50s and 60s that there would be greater pressure to finally get our care system sorted out because it is a horrible system to interact with the NHS while there are problems with it is redeemed by its simplicity if you're unwell your GP refers you or you go to the hospital if you are in need of care the kind of care which isn't provided by hospital you're being bounced around between all these different systems and people fall through the cracks and I had hoped that that being such a a commonplace experience during the pandemic would build the kind of social pressure which could result in a new kind of institution being built obviously it wouldn't be the kind of institution that a Labour government might build wouldn't be the kind of institution that we would like to see built but there would be greater pressure on it to happen and it has just been deleted from the political consciousness and I think that process of political forgetting that we're all trying to grapple with in some way is helped along by the fact that when you've experienced something very traumatic your brain doesn't want to let you remember it and I mean it does feel I think it's fair to say that you know care workers supermarket shelf stackers or all of these people that we talked about as essential workers have been betrayed Mm. in some way because I feel like there very much was a implicit promise I mean I'm sure actually sometimes it was probably explicitly expressed from the Downing Street press conferences but I don't have an example of that so we'll say it was was at least at the very least implicitly promised that you will have to work really hard through really tough unprecedented conditions but we see you we recognize you that's why we're clapping for you that's why you're mentioned in every video from Downing Street and that was to say this is going to be really tough but we're not going to forget what you've done for us And, you know, if you ever felt devalued before this, you won't feel devalued again, don't worry. And immediately, as a society, we've forgotten. Now, I don't want to, you know, 
and I suppose I, I want to leave this as an open question actually is to you know whose fault is that is that purely because the Tories didn't want to pay these people more so successfully demonized them and everyone went along with it is it the right-wing press who sort of said there's actually no point now in uplifting these people we're bored of it or is it just that you know almost in a bottom-up way we said you know what one of the reasons we didn't really think about care work before is because it's uncomfortable and awkward mm. Um, and we don't want to think about it again, especially not if it reminds us of that horrible pandemic time. So, I mean, who, if if, if we agree there's been some sort of betrayal, who who did it? Who betrayed these people? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's an unanswerable question in some way. It's very answerable in another way, which is it's the government. Um, but, I, I, you know, just on your last suggestion that all of us kind of took our foot off the pedal or didn't apply enough pressure I think and this is one of the things that came to me while I was writing about care actually is that it's so difficult to get people to consider what they might have to eventually depend on Mm. and that their bodies might fail them or that they are subject to frailty and it's not fair it's not you can't you can you I mean you can do better and worse things for yourself right like it's important to exercise and maybe you know eat something other than chips but wow at me next time (laughs) (laughs) but frailty comes to us all it comes unfairly and it comes unpredictably and it's a horrible thing to think about sickness mortality uh indignity Mm. they're very very difficult areas and as you say we have defence mechanisms against them. We forget about them. You know, so in a sense, it's not surprising, but we need to get better at it. We need to get better at it. I think there's also a problem with how class has rendered itself invisible, which is we don't see the billionaires who added to their wealth in record historic sums during the pandemic. We don't see the people who enriched themselves by phoning up a minister who they knew from school or university or whatever and said yeah this pp thing i can do it we didn't see those people and they're able to just disappear back into the kind of comfortable money land that you know they get to live in and we're left with you know a media that's constantly telling us that we've run out of money and there are difficult choices a government that has no incentive to tax wealth or close tax loopholes or pursue a much more you know redistributive economic settlement and we're also I think left with an overwhelming vibe of negative solidarity of why should you get when I don't have and people as workers or as demographics or as individuals just being played off against one another and it makes us so vulnerable to I think yeah forgetting some of those implicit promises that were made to essential workers and it's because the class enemy are invisible. Um, I want to talk about some more specific Um, I suppose, or some realisations that we kind of had and then forgot, which are more specific to government. And these, I suppose, especially refer to the economy or what we might think of as sort of that 
sphere um, of society. I, I made a list of them sort of when I was planning for this show. And they were, so I had the era of efficiency savings. So throughout the 2010s, you had this culture in public services. Well, it wasn't just a culture, it was an instruction, which was to say, if you have any spare capacity, cut it. Because if there are any spare beds in your hospital, get rid of them. If there are any, if there, if there are any people in your social care system who aren't working constantly from 9am to 9pm or whatever, get rid of them. People should be working all the time. If there's spare capacity, get rid of it. And obviously what we realised during the pandemic is if you have no spare capacity, the moment an external shock comes along and you might actually need to provide a bit more than you were providing before, the whole thing falls over. Now, I was hoping that had sort of proven that this was a bad idea. I'm not quite sure if we've remembered that. Um, another was sort of a downside of the indifference about where we produce anything. So sort of neoliberalism always says, always go to the cheapest producer. Then when it came to stu stuff such as um, face masks, I mean, in the end, we didn't actually need mechanical ventilation as much as people thought. But you might remember there was that mm. the, the ventilator challenge where we were trying to get Dyson to redesign ventilators, etc., etc. And the, with the vaccines, there was the same issue where it sort of seemed like, actually, it would be helpful if in a time of crisis, we could produce about enough stuff that we need in an emergency. Um, that seemed to be something we'd realised. Again, I feel like we've, we've sort of forgotten it. And then also the, the importance of state capacity. So neoliberalism, one of the things was say, you, you don't really need the state to be able to do that much. You can outsource. Someone else will be able to do it cheaper. Um, I think when it came to the necessity to create ambitious projects in a short space of time, which were very adaptable and changeable to, to events, you know, the state was just proved to be pretty rubbish. So test and trace, I think the most obvious example, PPE procurement. So instead of having a state which was able to go and find the best face masks, you sort of said, oh, well, we'll give it to this private guy who they'll hopefully do it for us. Um, hopefully this woman from BT or wherever she was from, Talk Talk, will be able to do test and trace. There was no one in government who was able to do this stuff. And all of these things felt in a way like sort of death knells to dogmas of neoliberalism, which... I don't know, have we forgotten? I don't think we have forgotten that because one of the things which is really striking about doing media at the moment is that there is a consensus that everything is in a terminal state of decline. Everybody thinks that. Tory voters think that, Labour voters think that, young people think that, old people think that. And whenever you alight upon an example, whether it's something like PPE or whether it's something like sewage companies just, you know, pumping feces into the waterways, people can see that privatisation and profiteering has made the delivery of public goods much worse. So I don't think that's something which has been forgotten. The problem is, is that there is no alternative, not in a, you know, capitalist realism, you know, the only way is austerity kind of way, but just because there isn't a political alternative to it at the moment. Um, you know, Keir Starmer is talking about partnerships with business and private enterprise. He's rolling back on every commitment he's ever made, but particularly with the ones to do with bringing things back into public ownership. And so that leaves people in a really difficult place, which is I can see that everything is going to shit around me. We've had a really extreme lesson in that during the pandemic, but you walk out of your house and you can see potholes opening everywhere. You can see, you know, rubbish mounting up. You can see dog mess. People feel that the basic work of delivering public goods isn't getting done, but no one is saying, and I'm going to come along and make it happen. 
Right. And and the the issue here, of course, is that these things can't be forgotten because, of course, you can walk out your front door and see. <laughs> you know, anyone with eyes can see the problems here. Um, all the things you list, Michael, I think, you know, uh, they're interesting because lots of people were saying these things before the pandemic, of course. You know, new public management doesn't actually work. Um, you know, and what is new public management? Uh, so, sort of sorry, this kind of cut all your efficiency savings, etc. You know, and this, you know, everyone for years has said that this has been a t- you know disaster, particularly in the health service, particularly. Um, you know, given the unpredictability um, of, of actual, you know, uh, of, of health requirements. So the, the question about kind of sites of production, I think, is a really interesting one. Because, you know, for a little while before the pandemic, people were saying, well, is the, is the world deglobalizing or is it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This is, I think, in some ways, an imponderable question. What I would say is that we had a bit of a preview of what things are going to look like when agriculture goes tits up, um, partly as a result of climate change, partly as a result of soil depletion, um, this kind of whole kind of... And, and one of the things I think that we we perhaps didn't pay enough attention to during the crisis um, and during the pandemic in particular, um, it, you know, is this question of, of the, the extent to which there are interactions here with kind of climate change, right? So there, there's an argument to be made that, that zoonotic viruses like coronaviruses um, are going to become more prevalent in human transmission chains simply because uh, of the invasive nature um, of extractive industry. Uh, I think it's a plausible answer. Just to make that super, just super clear. So so these viruses are often held in reservoirs of animal populations, um, which don't have kind of large interactions with human beings. As human um, extraction and infrastructure pushes into those reserves, um, now bats is so you build you know, a mine next to a bat cave and suddenly exactly, it's more and likely that, that, it's more likely that it's going to jump from human beings uh, from from the animal reservoir into human beings that seems to be quite probable um, and you know it's something that people have warned about for years Mike Davis who died not so long ago pointed out that this is um, you know in a book written many many years before the pandemic um, a very kind of insightful um, and, and far-sighted book about uh, you know the transmit you know it was about bird flu really much more than uh, this but but so so that's something that we should bear in mind is that there is a kind of as everything there's a climate question here but in terms of of you know whether we should be aiming at kind of autarky um, to some extent right so so that we produce everything that we need domestically within here obviously this would require kind of extraordinary transformation of the British economy. Um, you, know, you know, Britain is a service economy. <laughs> it doesn't produce things itself. It's not very good at it. Its agricultural sector is kind of quite a dire state. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, we're great at exporting transphobia. We're really good at exporting so transphobia. Yeah, no, it's true. We are a world leader in transphobic brain worms. It's a, uh, really, <laughs> we still make things is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, we certainly do make ideology, although, of course, um, our, our ideological export industry um, which was, of course, British universities, which were an extraordinary um, export industry in Britain, have uh, you know really gone through the floor. But yeah, so this is just just to say, I think, and I think it's an important thing is that if we if we face the end of kind of cheap commodities, and that that's food as much as it is kind of mm. cheap electronics or cheap, you know, you know the, the the pandemic has given us a bit of a preview of the kind of questions we're going to have to ask. Incidentally, we're talking a day after Suella Braveman turned up at a, a kind of rather strange. 
um, right-wing conference in Westminster. And one of the things she was saying, we need to teach our children to be lorry drivers and things like that. This is one of the things that is on the mind of the right. It's something that um, we need to think about as well. I'm not in favour of autarky, if only because I think, for one thing, you know, renewable energy will require um, vast cooperative grids to work across national borders um but we're getting i think into into the weeds a bit the other thing i would say here is you mentioned supermarkets earlier um supermarkets which run on sort of just-in-time supply chains there are two very interesting things about that during the pandemic i thought one is that however much one wants to subject society to totally rational calculation ahead of time there are things that are unexpected. I don't want to rerun the socialist calculation debate here, um, but it's something to think about when you're thinking about how you want to reorder society. The other thing is that however much any of us said to people, this is about supply chains, the extent to which there was an appetite for public policing of other people's appetites and irrational behaviours was extraordinary. I heard that she was hoarding toilet paper. You know, that sort of thing. Or, you know, fights breaking out over the, you know, the the last, you know, stack of bog roll or whatever. Um, and certainly there were irrational passions mediated through through consumer choices. Much less than some people predicted, right? Yeah, so much, much less. Obviously, much of the government much, much initial less. response was governed by this idea that the government will suddenly panic. You'll have mass crowds rioting etc etc we've got to kind of lie to people and keep them calm when actually people were actually a, a lot more sensible and we saw worse rioting when the edmonton ikea opened <laughs> Genuinely. I mean, it's true. that is true that is true but but this is but, but one of the things i'm saying here is that is that despite it not happening the public appetite for saying there is someone else out there in society who is behaving in this kind of you know undisciplined appetitive um you know self-indulgent way and i want to wag my finger at them i think it's a very telling fact about british politics well i mean i think this is an interesting thing about the pandemic is the way in which it brought pre-existing national traits into sharper relief and i think one of them is that we are a nation of curtain curtain twitches i am a curtain twitcher i know this about myself i'm constantly going "Ooh, her next door she's having an argument with her son again or you know i think i think that we are quite nosy as as a people and when you brought in the sort of you know crusading morality of monitoring other people because there's a pandemic on, don't you know, and this is your second walk today, and that could <laughs> literally kill my grandmother, is that it gives people license to be the policeman in their community, the policeman in their home. Um, and it's because I think there's something about the English, how we relate to public space, which is we are constantly on the lookout for nuisances, deviance, and potential dangers in a way that I don't think other cultures are so obsessed with. Well, I suppose that the lockdowns were policed more harshly in many other countries. So obviously, I mean, obviously in East Asia, which we can talk about in a moment, but also in like Italy, for example, I think you, you, know, you had to show papers if you wanted to go for a run. So we, we weren't the most authoritarian of countries, even if, you know, I don't know, I don't know how we compared when it came to curtain twitching, because I'm not sure how we would... I don't, measure, measure that. That. Yeah, I, don't I don't know how you measure that. Yeah, I don't know how you measure curtain twitching. Curtain twitching as a, I suppose, I suppose this is it's a shame. This is visual, so we can't play a clip of it. But the, I think a, a big, 
memory of mine from that first lockdown. It was panned by everyone, so it's not... Oh, the Derby police. The Derby police (laughs) with a drone. (laughs) Um, And they released this drone video of people going on a walk in real, like, empty countryside with a dog. Like, it looked quite lovely. I'm sure no one caught COVID-19, but they sort of released that, sort of saying this could kill people. As I say, that wasn't that wasn't representative because there was a huge backlash and everyone was like, it's bizarre. But obviously the police thought it was it was a reasonable thing to do at the time. But I think there's something about that which is endured. And, and maybe we we're going to come to this at the end. So I'm really sorry if I'm mistiming it. But something which you hear a lot and particularly from people who have disabilities or loved ones with disabilities and are immunocompromised is saying we're still in a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic and you're behaving in a way which is reckless and it's endangering me or it's endangering someone who I love and I've got a lot of sympathy for that from the perspective of the state hasn't done loads of things that it could do to make things safer for immunocompromised people ultimately when they said all right freedom day is happening covid still exists and sure it's more dangerous for you even though you have the vaccine but what are you going to do it didn't make ventilation better in schools or public places didn't do all these things what it could do to to keep people safe um but I think that it also speaks that instinct, which is to go, you know, other people's fun is frivolity, right? This is my survival that's at stake. And what you want, it's frivolous. Now, of course, I'm not in any way comparing the need to live and the need to go to a club. But if you add up all of those things, which is a mentally and emotionally healthy life, I mean, I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that keeps people alive. I also don't think it's... I mean, this was this was obviously very a very live issue on the show in 2021 when sort of lots of the the restrictions were being loosened. Um, and I suppose my position became sort of... I, I don't think a politics whereby you suggest there's a zero-sum game between the majority of the population having an enjoyable, fulfilling, active life and uh, unlucky minority of people with immunocompromised positions. Sort of, if, if you say you can't have one without the other, then... I, I, it's a little bit of a political dead end, I think. Um, I should say on your on, on the question of is the pandemic over in a future episode, so probably the next episode, um, I'm speaking to Bill Hanage from Harvard University. So we're actually sort of putting the the, the epidemiological questions to one side today. So we will be coming um, to that, and then some of the experiences and we're playing will also include um, someone who is immunocompromised. Um, let's rank the left. Um, not not various commentators in some sort of in some sort of league table um, but how the collective left if there is such a thing um, performed if that's the right phrase um, during COVID-19 or how leftist analysis looks after the events of of the pandemic now we've spoken a lot about sort of neoliberalism and I think a lot of the left-wing critiques of neoliberalism were I mean I mean, to proven correct, essentially. I mean, as we've discussed, I think we sort of laid that out. So let's put that yeah, to one side. You can't side. get Deloitte to do everything. You can't get Deloitte to do everything. Spare capacity, you know, matters. It's good to have some of it. And it's, you know, frontline workers, essential workers. These are all sort of traditional views of the left, which are fairly consensus views of the left, let's say, which which did seem to be, um, they came mainstream, which is one of the things which was sort of interesting. Um, and one of the, the few... Uh, moments of the pandemic that could inspire optimism. I'm supposed to go to some more controversial topics or topics where I think the left potentially um, wasn't as as well equipped as it was when it came to that critique of neoliberalism. 
in my list again here. Um, I've got that leftist politics has for a very long time been preoccupied with a defence of negative liberty. So it's not particularly interested in when state power might be a good thing. It's sort of state power is just a bit icky. Um, any sort of imposition on our life is a bit like, um, I think this partly, you're probably going to disagree with me, James, but I think sort of a bit of a reading of, of Foucault, where it's sort of like this idea of biopolitics, which governs who lives and who dies is a bit icky. Ooh, not really sure if I like that. We need to lash out at any kind of invasive state. Um, this was critiqued, I think, very interestingly by Benjamin Bratton. He said the Western left should embrace a positive biopolitics. So really embrace the idea of competent government as opposed to small government, which I think when it comes to, um, let's say, coercion at least, the left wants government to be very, very small. Um, I think there was also some cherry picking when it came to sort of the policies the left wanted to import. So people often sort of said, look, we don't need to have lockdowns. We could just be like Japan. Um, but Japan, quite importantly, had very strict border controls. And so I think there was a, a, a sense whereby people on the left would sometimes ignore the bits that so they choose a country that we want to be like and then point to the bits of that country that they didn't find problematic and then underplay the other ones like border controls for basically all the countries that did well during COVID-19 were a key part of it and they were very tight border controls almost no one going in and out um equally I think afterwards now I I have mixed feelings about this because I mean, especially from seeing a question on the, from the Question Time audience when you were on there recently, Ash, this idea that Tories are all in it for themselves and the PPE contracts was just about contracts for mates, etc. That's obviously had some political traction. I actually kind of am a bit more on Dominic Cummings' side here, where it's that you're in an emergency, buy the goddamn stuff. Who cares if you filled in all the... Um, you know, the correct forms along along the way. Um, but I've, I've, I've put three <laughs> things out there. Borders, negative liberty, PPE contracts. Um, do you agree or disagree with me? Who wants to James go first? James is chomping at the bit. I've got to let you have it. Uh, James really was chomping at the bit and both he and Ash did indeed disagree with me on quite a few of my critiques of the left's response to COVID. Um, that part of the conversation is a bonus for Patreon subscribers. So if you want to hear me, Ash and James argue about Foucault and much more, you can go to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Um, in the second part of the conversation, we also discussed the Black Lives Matter movement, which accelerated immediately after the first lockdown. So we talked about the relationship between that and COVID-19. We also um, discussed whether COVID-19 really can be compared to World War II. And we listened to those um, voice notes to people with different experiences of the COVID lockdowns. And we addressed, this was really interesting. I had a, you know, these are the perfect two people to discuss this as well. And we addressed why there are still no good lockdown novels. Um, so there is an hour more of this conversation. Ash and James were both very generous with their time um, to listen to that full episode. And you can go to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. And that's what makes this possible. And we really, really do appreciate it. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design. <laughs>